EAG. They're leading the game. What game? The M&A game. The data conversion game. The last 18 years, EAG has helped dozens of EMP companies expedite acquisition onboarding, including the conversion of systems and data, allowing operators to hit even the most aggressive of TSAs. A 90-day TSA? Sure. 60-day TSA? No problem. 30-day TSA? Crazy, aggressive, but EAG can help. EAG has a refined, proven process to help operators integrate acquisitions and is the undisputed heavyweight champ for your M&A integration needs. For more information, visit EAGservices.com. That's right, EAGservices.com. And here's the man you've been waiting for. He's off-putting but outstanding. He's sweet, he's crude. Chuck Yates. <clears throat> Thanks, brother. You're too cool. Yeah. All right, lower expectations. It's not going to be that funny. You laugh once, that's it. All right, so I checked into the hotel today, and you know how you have to like sign 100 things? You kind of have to initial a few things when you check in. Nobody ever reads that, right? I had a little time today, I read it. It turned out one of the clauses I initial allows Harold Hamm to rifle through my room while I'm giving this speech. <laughs> what, too soon? Too soon? All right. That actually reminds me of my favorite G. Gordon Liddy story. So G. Gordon Liddy, as most of y'all know, Watergate, and he was renowned as the only person that didn't speak, you know, that didn't uh, dime somebody else out to get a lesser sentence. He went to jail and all that. So I got to meet G. Gordon Liddy, I don't know, 20 years ago. And I said that, that was so cool. You stood by your principles. You didn't dime anyone out. You were the lone gun that didn't do it. And he said, that is not true. And I said, really? And he goes, the Cubans that we hired to break in with us. When they were on the witness stand, the prosecutor said, which one of these people hired you? And all four of the Cubans to a T said, I don't know, all those white guys look the same to me. <laughs> so anyway, real quick, last thing, and then I'll actually speak. This was all Claire's doing. When you work with really wonderful people, they also have a tendency to have a snarky side. So she sat around and has listened to my podcast, and she claims these are the things I say over and over again. If we took this away, I would never have a podcast. So I hate to say this, I hate to disappoint Dave, when somebody yells bingo, you're just gonna be an idiot. There is not a prize tonight. Clearly got the cute code. I wouldn't do that until I'm done speaking, please, or else you'll start booing. And you can download the, the podcast. And thank you, Claire, for doing that. And yes, it was very funny. So, it was interesting. Brooke emails me, says, dude, you wanna come speak to the Petroleum Alliance? I was immediately back with, are you sure you got the right Chuck? And he said, yeah, 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 yeah. And I said, okay, great, what do you want me to talk about? And I kid you not, this is the email back. I want you to talk about failure. And I was like, what? <laughs> I kinda of think I'm prominent businessman Chuck Yates, but okay, what we come? Talk about failure. So I email back, I guess you want to hear about prom night with Julie Sutton. Yeah, it didn't go so good, but 
So I'm assuming you want me to talk about getting fired. So, you know, given the self-immolation I do every day on Twitter, why not? Let's talk about me getting fired. So it was April 27th, Zoom call, because we're right in the middle of COVID, and uh, CEO of Kane Anderson wants to have a discussion. Sure, okay, that's not an unusual thing. Get on the phone call. Chuck, we're letting you go. So anyway, okay. Holy cow, I can finally travel. And of course, we're in the middle of quarantine. So I get stuck in my house in, uh, in Richmond, Texas. So for the next month, I spend watching Oprah, eating bonbons, and negotiating a separation agreement with a private equity firm. Now, obviously, there are non-disparage clauses in there as well as I would never want to speak ill of Kane. We had a wonderful 20 years together. I do have to point out that clause seven, paragraph A, three little I, does prohibit me from dropping a diss track. So there will be no rap album from Chuck Yates or, uh, or Nimble Fatty coming. But like part of this getting fired is you gotta tell people, right? Um, and so I've got three kids. I've got the three greatest kids on the planet, and I'm sitting there going, all right, when do I tell them? Because I don't know what's gonna happen. I mean, I don't know if I'm telling them, oh, by the way, daddy's going to court. And uh, so anyway, just, you need this backdrop so you understand my three children. We were at Urban Air Adventure, which is kind of a kid's mecca playground. We're in the room, that has 400 trampolines in it, and you jump from trampoline to trampoline. I see this big red thing in the middle, leather. I think that this is a big pad, so I do a flip on it. It is wood that just has a piece of leather on top. <laughs> Boom. I think I have like torn my rotator cuff. I'm laying there, writhing in pain, and this describes my three kids to a T. Charlie? internalizes everything, is sitting there mortified. Oh. Sarah, my middle child, who will run the world one day, she immediately jumps into action. Charlie, talk to dad. Dad, I'm gonna go get the manager. I'm gonna get you an ice pack. Do you need me to call an ambulance? So she marches off. My baby girl, Kelly, looks at me and says, Daddy, does this mean I have to stop jumping? And so <laughs> those are my three kids. So with that as a backdrop, we're about three weeks into negotiating the, uh, the uh, separation agreement. I've kind of figured out that I've just given up, so it's gonna be fine. There will be no lawsuit, everything's gonna be great. So I decide to tell the kids. So we're driving to the ice cream store, because Richmond, Texas has the greatest ice cream on the planet. So we're driving there, and I go, all right, kids, dad has some news. Kane Anderson has fired me. So I look in the mirror immediately. Charlie, internalizing, mortified. Charlie, you're not gonna have to drop out of college. So I, get, I hear an exhale in the back seat. Ah, okay. Kelly immediately pipes up, Daddy, does this mean we can't have ice cream? I'm like, no, sweetie, we can go have ice cream. It'll be fine. My daughter, Sarah, is sitting there and she's reading all this and she's very, very smart. And what you need to know as a backdrop is the joke my nickname has always been prominent businessman Chuck Yates, and it's because I'm, I'm, I'm really lucky that I have multiple musicians that are friends. And they'll let me go on tour, I'll be their, their roadie, I'll carry guitars and picks and amps and all that good stuff, and I go out on tour with them. And I've always had the joke that if the tour bus crashes, the plane goes down, 
it's going to be Thomas Rhett and nine other people die in a plane wreck, right? And so what I've asked Claire to do is if that should happen, she has to call every entertainment outlet, news outlet in America and say, it wasn't just Thomas Rhett, it was Thomas Rhett and prominent businessman Chuck <laughs> Yates died in this crash. So that's always been the running joke. One of my musician friends made me a little nameplate for my desk. And so I'm like, this is great. So anyway, I turned to Sarah, I go, Sarah, you all right? And she goes, yeah, daddy, I just have one thing. I go, what's that, sweetie? And she goes, I really don't think we can call you prominent businessman Chuck Yates anymore now that you've been fired. So this 15-year-old who takes all her shots at me, which about 1% mortifies me, 99% is my loins produce this. This is amazing. It gets even worse. So one of my dear friends that's a musician, and Jewel, you know, who will save your soul, you were meant for me, and so anyway, 15-year-old Sarah has become fascinated with my dating habits. You know, I'm now five years post-divorce, so we're driving along, and she goes, Dad, I need to know, did you and Jewel ever date? And I said, no, sweetie, we, we never have. We're just friends. Sarah goes, oh, so you messed that up, too. <laughs> it, gets, it, get, it gets worse. <laughs> it gets worse. So I kind of laugh, and I said, well, you know Jewel. She really likes her swaggy, macho athlete type guys, right? Sarah goes, so your Peloton just doesn't match up. <laughs> oh, wow. So it's that as I give you a backdrop, and, I'll, and, and, and I, I periodically will say something serious here tonight, and this is serious message number one. It is with incredible regret that I get up here and tell you these stories about my children, because I don't know why the hell it took me losing my job to fully engage with my kids when I come home. I mean, I came home and I worried about what the hell is Lenormand doing drilling that well? You know, what the hell is Lenormand doing with this? You know, but I truly didn't focus on my children until I had nothing else to do. That is the greatest joy you guys will ever have. And if there's one thing you can take away from this tonight, please go home, turn work off, turn your spouse off for that matter, because I'm sure they're a pain in the rear too. Turn that off and go focus on your kids. You will not regret it. It's amazing to see them grow. No, that... So now we're about four weeks out of me getting fired and the word's kind of leaking out, right? So the Wall Street Journal calls. And anyway, I do have that going for me. It appeared in the Wall Street Journal that I got like, Chuck Yates has left the firm. You know, I mean, code word for got his butt fired, right? And so anyway, it pops out on the Wall Street Journal, and that, of course, leads to Twitter. I don't know how many of you folks are on Twitter. I don't know how many of you folks know about Energy Finance Twitter, but that was a 72 hours. It was, it was unbelievable. I'll just read several of the tweets. Uh, somebody said, what's such a big deal about Yates getting fired? Someone tweeted back, well, he was voted the most likely in the energy business to be found in a bathtub full of ice without a kidney. <laughs> in honor of Chuck Yates, I'm going to wear my ripped jeans tonight and get really drunk and stumble around the room. This, I'm just going to have to straight out read the, the, the tweet because I can't do it justice. I can't remember. So, Weddy Ford, 99.9% .9 of the people on Twitter are anonymous. They make up names. Weddy Ford tweeted out, Yates is a goofball, but he's not a dick like much of NCAP or Quantum and not fundamentally dishonest like Riverstone 
or completely incompetent like Apollo or EMG. <laughs> so I have that going for me. I got that going for me. So at one point, and I'm sitting here laughing at this because as you can tell, I'm somewhat self-deprecating. Um, I'm sitting here laughing at this. Of course, multiple mentions of Jewel, you know, sitting around listening to Jewel, thinking of Chuck tonight. So Jewel at one point jumps onto Twitter, unbeknownst to me, jumps onto Twitter and tweets back, all right, guys, this has been a lot of fun. Make fun of Chuck. And of course, that just exploded Twitter. So the tweet that came out following that was, there are two types of people on energy finance Twitter. There are the people that go, holy cow, Jewel actually acknowledged us. And then there are the people that are Jewel stalkers. And the Venn diagram is Chuck Yates. So. <laughs> That said, that 72 hours of Twitter making fun of me, I do, it does remind me, though, of my favorite Bum Phillips story. So back in the 70s, the Oilers are going to play the last game of the season. They're playing the Green Bay Packers in Green Bay. The Oilers win, they're in the playoffs. They lose, they're not in the playoffs. And I don't know if you guys remember this, any old Oilers fan, but the Oilers used to have a kicker that was literally batshit crazy named Tony Fritsch. He was a Hungarian soccer player. So Tony Fritsch, the week before, decides he needs his contract renegotiated. So he's negotiating with the GM, Lad Herzog. He's like, I need my contract, blah, 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 blah. The plane's supposed to take off Friday at noon. Tony Fritsch is nowhere to be found. So this is back in the day where there aren't 35 guys kicking every day ready to just step in and you sign someone. Lad Herzog, I don't have a kicker. So he's calling around feverishly. They land in Wisconsin. The next morning comes to Bum Phillips. He says, I found a guy. He kicked in a community college. He actually went to a training camp three years in a row. I talked to the general manager there. They said, yeah, one year he almost made it. And his agent says he's been kicking every day and he's in the best shape of his life. So Bum Phillips says, all right, get him out there. It's snowing in Green Bay. Supposedly Kenny Stabler and Dave Casper are drunk up in the stands, dancing around with their shirts off. And Bum Phillips is having to try out for a kicker. So he comes out there and Bum goes, all right, son, let's see what you got. Let's kick an extra point. The snap goes back, the ball goes down, boom, shanks it to the left. All right, son, show me a 30-yard field goal. The snap goes back, the ball goes down, the guy kicks it again, shanks it again to the left. Bum Phillips says, all right, let's try a 40-yard field goal. Snap goes back, ball goes down, guy kicks it, shanks it again to the left. Bum Phillips says, I've seen enough. Slaps him on the ass and says, let's go do this. So fast forward, here's the game, 46 seconds left in the game. Oilers are down 12 to 10. It's fourth down and 11. It would be a 46-yard field goal. Bum Phillips calls timeout. He walks over to the guy. I told you yesterday you were my guy. I told you you were going to win me the game. Slaps him on the ass, says, get out there and win me the game. The guy goes out there. Snap goes back. Ball goes down. Boots it straight through the uprights. The Oilers win the game. They go to the playoffs. So the press conference afterwards, they're sitting there and they're talking to this guy. They're like, how did you do this? You've never kicked in a regular season game. You've only kicked in the preseason. How'd you do it? Coach Phillips just showed such confidence in me. He told me I was his guy. 
I felt like he was my father, and I was not going to let that man down. I put my head down, I focused, and I kicked the ball. And great. And they turned to Coach Phillips. How'd you know that he was the guy? Coach Phillips said, he's the only freaking kicker for 500 miles. <laughs> and I tell that story to bring up kind of second serious point. Never underestimate the, the ability of a slap on the ass and saying, you're my guy to motivate someone. I mean that seriously, because I was kind of at a point, I think this was a couple of months after getting fired, and I was having a lot of fun. I was relieved that I wasn't under so much stress, but no question self-doubt creeps in. I mean, you're sitting there going, man, my track record was pretty good, blah, 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 but it, it creeps in and all that. And on Twitter, two guys, Landman Life, Landmanery, reached out and said, hey, we're having a happy hour tonight. We're going to be on a Zoom call. You want to join us? And I said, sure. So I wound up on a happy hour with seven, I think none of them were older than 30 landmen, and we had a beer. And I wound up having two beers that night and chatting with them about life and putting up cattle guards and all. And those might be the two best beers I ever had in my life. And a small, simple gesture of just, hey, you want to grab a beer? Meant an awful lot. We're all looking for just a little bit of acceptance, and don't underestimate that. So I'm not sure it made up for the whole kidney joke. But anyway, Twitter did redeem itself. Third serious thing I'll say tonight. And this is going to sound weird, but it is true. In a weird sort of way, when you get publicly fired and the like, you do get to find out who exactly your friends are. You figure out who liked Chuck Yates, you get to figure out who liked the managing director at Kane Anderson. Because I mean, I think we all would think that when we get fired, we're gonna have our Rudy moment, you know, everybody's gonna come turn in their jersey and stuff, and you get the practical. All right, you didn't have to laugh that loud. Come on, man. You know, and so you kind of think maybe I'll get a Rudy moment. You know, Jerry Maguire, at least he got to take the fish, right? And the, the, she, she quit with him. So, but practically, you know, particularly when oil's at minus 37, you're not going to get that and all. But here's the one thing I will tell you about that. I clearly know who my friends are today. Dave Lenormand is like, God damn, you look like shit, but please come on my webinar. So I know Dave's my, my, my buddy. Um, and all that. But here's the one thing I want to tell you that I think is really important that I want you to take with you. The people I suspected that wouldn't call me, they're the ones that didn't call me. The people that I suspected were going to call me, they called. I'm going to try to say this in such a way that I don't sound like a prick. Um, and it's going to be hard. Um, so maybe with that sensitivity, I can kind of I do think one of the important things that's happened to me in terms of going through this, getting fired, is I had the blessing of being able to price what freedom is worth to me. And I can't tell you enough that that is an important endeavor for you to do if you ever get the chance to do it. It is really amazing. You may find out freedom sucks. You may not like Oprah. You may not like bonbons. You may not like sitting on the front porch watching the cat try to catch a rat. You may not like any of that, which means go back to work. It's great. 
you may find out that that stuff is the best stuff on the planet. And, you know, fortunately, I'm in a spot. My kids are going to be able to go to college if I don't go back to work and all that. But I will tell you, I discovered, at least with me, I like the toys. I don't need the toys. I will move back in with my parents before I get another job because freedom is actually the greatest thing in the world. I had no idea how much stress I was under. I kind of give the analogy, my mom had hip replacement surgery about seven or eight years ago. And I went and saw her the next day. I'm like, mom, how you doing? She goes, well, obviously I hurt. I was kind of splayed open yesterday and they ripped a bone out. And I go, yeah, that's not good. And she goes, but despite that, I had no idea the chronic arthritis and just how bad it hurt every day. And that's gone. I actually feel really good. And that is what I've felt about stress. And that's gone. And so, you know, if I want to sit around every day and make, you know, worthless podcasts where I send pizzas to some girl that's on a blind date, it's so much better than having to deal with toxic relationships and all that. So if you get a chance to price freedom in your life, please do. It may not be worth it to you, but you may like it. The other thing I will say to you to that end, if you're an employer, give your employees time off so that they can go price freedom because it's the right thing to do. They need to have the clarity. They need to have no responsibility hanging off them. But I will tell you the creativity that goes on in my mind now with business situations is pretty amazing. And it's because the stress is gone. And so I'm not making any money from this. I'm doing unemployment all wrong. I'm really busy. I have a huge burn rate. I'm not making any money. But I have come up with a lot of great stuff and helped folks. And you would benefit from that if you did that to your, for your employees. I don't know what the right answer is because I've never really been a CEO on anything. I'm sure I'd screw it up. But you know, every two years, giving somebody three months off, every three years, four months off, I don't know what the right answer is, but it's something you really ought to consider because you will benefit from it greatly. And the last thing I'll say, and I'm happy to talk questions unless the Herald Ham joke got me thrown off stage, um, is really cool thing I got to do this weekend. I went to Clarksdale, Mississippi. And I don't know if you guys know that, that's the home of the blues. <laughs> I've been there. It was amazing. Really, you know, so I went down where Muddy Waters' house was and, uh, and all the likes, because I've got a buddy that throws a blues festival down there. So I got to do that. I got to go to the Ground Zero Blues Club, which is owned by Morgan Freeman. I got to uh, see Morgan Freeman, which was, which was really cool and the like. But sort of the pinnacle of that whole, I went to the crossroads where... I went to the crossroads where Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil so he could become the greatest guitar player, et cetera. So I did all that, but the coolest thing I got to uh, see, and this is what I want to close with because it, uh, it was really cool. I got to meet James Meredith. James Meredith was the first black to go to Old Miss. And literally, he had been uh, in the Air Force for seven years. He heard Kennedy's speech about ask not what you can do for yourself, what you can do for your country. And he said the thing he could do was to go to Ole Miss. He had been turned down for admissions twice, even though Air Force, great grades, sued, got into Ole Miss, and went. Classes he had to take by himself. No white student would take a, a, a class with him. He went through all this. He organized a march from 
basically Ole Miss to Memphis, which is, I don't know, 200 miles. Day two into that march, he got shot and had to go to the hospital. Civil rights leaders came and were finishing the march. He came back uh, before the march was ended, literally on crutches to finish the march and go in there. That dude's a badass. And so anyway, I got to meet him and I got to go up to him and I said, hey man, I just wanna pay my respects. I go, I think what you did is amazing. You really changed the world. You made it a better place. 81 years old, James Meredith said, well, boy, you better come join me because I'm still working on it and I need help. And I thought that was a great response. So with that, yeah, bingo. Exactly, exactly. So with that, I appreciate you guys having me. Thank you so much. Questions for Chapel? There are two, three questions. Dax? Yeah. Let's uh, run with your assumption that energy investing at the wide scale is drying up. How long do you think before consumers begin to start to feel that pain? And what do you think that pain will be like? So basically, the question is we're drying up on investing. That's going to lead to higher prices because of lack of supply. How long will consumers um, be willing to tolerate that pain? Dan Pickering and I, um, I had Dan on the last two podcasts. We did a two-part uh, episode. We talked about it and we disagreed on this. So let me, Dan's much smarter than I am, so let's give his answer first. Dan basically said we got two problems in energy investing. We got the green problem, which is obviously all the stuff we've been talking about, but the bigger problem is the red problem. We just lost a ton of money, right? So that's why investors won't give us any. As we make money for investors, they'll come back, we'll give money. Nothing cures high oil prices like high oil prices. It's a cycle. It's always been a cycle. This time is no different. Boom, we're and then boom, we'll start drilling wells and everything's taken care of. So that's Dan's answer. I hated this. I mean, like Dave used to walk into my office and say, or we'd have meeting, board meetings, Dave would say, this time it's different. I'd say, oh, come on, Lenormand, it's never different. You know, it's always a cycle on all this. I actually think this time's different. I literally us now. Uh, I think we have been re relegated to a place in this industry, in this world, in the United States, where we are re literally going to be regulated into death. I'm not rooting for this. Trust me, energy loud, energy proud. I'm right there. I just think that's where we are. And I think, unfortunately, what happens in that world is. All of us are gonna have high prices, so with our, pr with our production, you know, we're gonna make money, we're gonna do pretty well here over the little bit, but at the end of the day, all the new oil, it's gonna come out of Russia, it's gonna come out of Saudi Arabia, it's gonna come out of Venezuela. A lot of places won't do it with the environmental protections that we have, and so we haven't accomplished anything but killing a bunch of people in Texas and Oklahoma is unfortunately what I think I, what's gonna happen. I hope I'm wrong. When you say ESG is, is real, it's here, we have to address it, I, I assume you don't mean in two years, 10 years, 15, we're all gonna burn up and what happens. So can we address it in a way that uh, satisfies the appetite? Is there a, a methane reduction? Is there an infrastructure change? How, how do you satisfy that ever-increasing appetite for do more, do more, ESG, ESG? No, I mean, I think that kind of goes back to one of the things we screwed up as an industry. And it's interesting, uh, 
an anonymous uh, guy on Twitter who's named Blake Street Bomber came on my podcast. And Bomber's a mid-30s energy guy. He looked at me and he said, Chuck, hey, one of the things that my generation's not going to do is screw it up like you guys did. And I was like, hey, fair enough. And I mean, it, he's right. To that point, I mean, historically, when energy did really well, the rest of the economy stunk. And so the rest of the nation would be in a recession. And so, you know, think back kind of 70s and 80s. And what did we do? Did we show sympathy? Did we knock 25 cents off oil, pro gasoline prices? No, we printed up bumper stickers that said freeze a Yankee, right? And so we have just this massive PR problem because we've literally done more for the planet than anything else over the last 200 years, except maybe vaccines, except maybe penicillin, right? And we haven't gotten that story out. We decided, oh, you know what? We have frac fluid that is literally leading to all this cheap, abundant natural gas that's making the environment uh, much better. What are we going to do? Let's not even tell anyone what's in it. Let's let them assume the worst. I mean, it's water and sand, right? We all know that. I mean, the worst thing in it is the acid that we drink every day in Diet Coke. I'm not saying that's good, but that was the worst thing in it. So I think we have potentially passed the point of no return, to your point, that nothing we do is going to be good enough, but it doesn't mean we don't try. I mean, we need to have diversified workforces. Um, every chance we get to highlight the fact that we've dropped emissions, we've captured carbon, we've reduced methane, we need to publish it and not be a dick about it. And I hate to say it that way, but we all are. We all get on Twitter and we talk about, oh, you couldn't even ride in your Tesla car because there's not enough plastic without me. Could we say it in a nice way? Is it too hard for us just to do that? So I think a lot to your point is exactly right, but it'd be really nice if we kind of were able to adopt the persona of Mr. Rogers. Let's put on our sweater tie our shoes and be really pleasant when we do it because we do have a massive PR problem. Last question, Joe? Can, can I be any more of a buzzkill? Go ahead. <laughs> so the question's about Budagate. Budagate was a podcast I had um, back in November. And the whole podcast was a guy I've known for 15 years named Greg Kane. I don't know if any of y'all know Greg in here, but Greg is an old school landscape. Greg jumps fences. He goes and takes photographs of the meter. He goes and bribes people at the coffee shop. When there's a truck of compressors headed this way, he follows them into the bathroom. Where are you heading with those compressors? He's old school, right? So Greg came into the Kane Anderson offices, call it 15 years ago, and Greg goes through, title's so horrible in this world, like this guy inherits the ranch, but the, they designated the homestead, so technically the wife should have signed it. We can go get a signature from the wife and we can hold Chesapeake up for a million dollars. Greg says, if you'll give me $10 million, I can turn it into 75. And I said, hey Greg, I've actually made a really nice life for myself by selling things to Chesapeake, to XTO, to Floyd Wilson, you know? And if I start lease busting those guys, they're not gonna buy my companies anymore. And that's a really nice life I have. And I said, you know, Greg, you're good, you're smart, but you're kind of sleazy. And I just can't do that. And Greg started crying and I felt really bad about it. 
And he almost came and hugged me. And he was so grateful. He's like, I've been trying to raise institutional money for 20 years and no one would ever tell me a reason why they wouldn't do this. I thought I was stupid. I thought I was all that. I was like, no, I just, I built my life. And he totally got it. And so we became friends. So I've known Greg for 15 years. So I can tell you this. When it comes to Budigate, Greg is claiming that EOG has the largest onshore discovery in the history of the United States. It's the Buddha, so think kind of Madison County in, in uh, Texas. And his whole evidence for this is that there is a massive infrastructure build going on in the Gulf Coast and pipelines coming down through. I know Greg well enough that if Greg tells me I jumped the fence here, there was a 48-inch pipe being buried right here. It's not on the Railroad Commission map, picture of it. He's not lying to me about that. I mean, I know Greg well enough to know that. And so Greg has spent seven, eight years studying all this. You know, his whole point is if the oil coming into the Gulf Coast is from the Permian, and this is the north route. It comes down. It should come down, and it should use the same right-of-way. You just stack all the pipes on top of each other, right? Because it's just, it's flowing. Well, one, the pipe actually scopes up and gets bigger as it moves through Madison County. Okay, that's odd. And, you know, the same thing's true if it's coming from the mid-continent, right? If this is stack scoop building, uh, you know, drilling and all this, and this is just infrastructure built for that, again, it should be on the same right-of-way. And theoretically, you know, it should at least say the same size or get smaller as it heads to the Gulf Coast. It actually gets bigger. So it comes through Madison, and it branches out. And six pipelines go different directions. They gather back at about Cleveland, Texas, and then they shoot over to the Gulf Coast. So on the basis of this... Greg is saying that's not right. I'll give him that. That doesn't sound right. I don't understand why they do that, particularly after we've figured out we're probably not growing production anymore in the United States. So if I'm a pipeline midstream company, why am I spending those dollars? So I'll give Greg that. So he has all this doc I've seen. He has jumped fences and taken pictures and the pictures are paint because they're being jammed. He has talked to people driving compressors in the bathroom where they have said, I cannot say that because it's nat national security. He's got a whole build. There's a big railroads uh, intersect going on, i.e. to bring in frac sand. And so I can't explain it. That being said, Greg might be crazy. I mean, I love the guy, but he, he might be crazy. So I don't know if it's true. We had Treadstone in there and that was the biggest deal Kane had ever done. Uh, and the like. So there is good rock in there. He, it is true that EOG asked for the biggest field exceptions ever for production limits in the history of the state of Texas for their field. That being said, is EOG really allowing acreage to expire in there? If that's true, probably not. Is there 300 people would have to be in on this conspiracy if it were true? Can 300 people keep their mouth shut? No. I don't think so. So the short answer is I don't know. I, I, I kind of felt like Greg had the right to tell his story. I, I will say this, the amount of humor it inspired on Twitter. If you're on Twitter, just search Budigate and you can spend the next five days laughing and coming up with all this. I don't know. As I like to say, it is the most influential, most downloaded podcast in energy history. 